The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner on day 101 of the coronavirus crisis. The Dow surges almost 800 points as New York's governor says the nation's hotspot is flattening the curve. A nice rally on Wall Street. The major averages are up. Stocks soar. The Dow ending the day up almost 800 points. Because people are naturally optimistic right now in terms of the market, I just don't think they're really factoring in what we're going to see on the other side. Successful investor Mark Cuban says despite the run, there's still a lot to fear. I don't know what's going on in Chicago. It sounds terrible. New Orleans sounds terrible. Tonight, we're following the track of the virus and have new information on the curve so many investors are watching so closely. Find out what's really happening on Main Street. And for many American business owners, anger starts bubbling over. What they're demanding from banks and the government. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, starts right now. Here's Scott Wapner. It is good to have you with us once again as we take our first look tonight at Futures it has been a slight move thus far after a big day. You can see right now it is red across the board, but it was a strong rally on Wall Street today. Investors seem to be hopeful about some positive signs that we are starting to see uh, relative to the virus right now. You can see what's uh, taking place uh, throughout the day today. It was a very strong rally on Wall Street. Positive signs about the outbreak. The Dow rallying nearly 780 points, closing back above 23,000 for the first time in nearly a month. The S&P 500 rising 3.5% and the Nasdaq 2.5%. So with today's moves, all three indexes have rallied sharply now from their March 23rd lows. The Dow is up 28% since then. The S&P 500 up 25% and the Nasdaq is 22%. From its low, let's bring in now Lizanne Saunders. She's the chief investment strategist and senior vice president with Charles Schwab. Lizanne, welcome back. It's good to see you. We've erased a lot of damage, as we said, from the lows. Right. Can we trust it? I, I think it's a little too soon to say. We, we all know that we're rewriting the playbook here, so we have to take with a great assault what history says. I mean, in a normal bottoming process, more often than not, you see a relatively weak breath rally off the lows. This one was particularly sharp over a condensed period of time, of course. Um, and typically when you don't have strong breath, which we've not really had, more often than not you have a retest. And then the final move from the low is on, you know, multiple breath thrusts. So, but again, uh, you know, the virus is really dictating the story. We saw a massive reversal yesterday when the CDC came out with slightly worse than expected daily numbers. Um, and I think we're still going to be at the mercy of the news in both directions. As long as the virus news doesn't get worse, does that necessarily mean that we, we might not test the lows? Well, I, I think the next step, of course, is how and when we start opening back up the economy and what the recovery looks like. 
and uh, that's still ahead of us. That's not behind us. So I think we all rightly so have had a consensus view that you would need to see a bending of the curve to start to build some of that confidence. But of course, the next big step is uh, is what what the contraction in the economy looks like and how quickly across the spectrum of industries and sectors we can see recovery. The other thing that was you know we need to be mindful of with this sharp rally off the lows is it's been driven by the most beaten up sectors. I'm not sure that's a message of strength looking ahead for the economy when it's energy and REITs and some of the areas that just got absolutely uh, slammed. So right now it looks more like just some bottom fishing, but. Uh, yeah, the, the reality is I have no idea. <laughs> so what are you suggesting that long, longer-term investors do this evening who are listening to our conversation? Well, what we've been suggesting really all along, we've been pounding the table in the last year about going back to the tried-and-true discipline around rebalancing, making sure you have a plan, you're diversified across asset classes, but rebalancing maybe a bit more frequently. And in particular in the last year, saying a lot of people rebalance with some sort of calendar periodicity. They might do it on a quarterly basis or an annual basis. In this environment, given volatility, you want your portfolio to dictate the timing of rebalancing, where you get extreme moves both on the upside and the downside. And it gives you opportunity to sort of stay just on the right side of the trade, for lack of a better word. Uh, that's we just really want to reinforce that to be a successful long-term investor does not require you pinpoint tops and bottoms. Investing should be a process over time, never about a moment in time. And I think there's never a bad time to remind investors of that. Do you think the leaders of the past will be the leaders of the future in terms of the big momentum, high high tech names, the Microsofts, the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Apples, the Googles? Well, keep in mind that along with that leadership into the, re- into the February highs, you had the strange bedfellow of utilities alongside the technology names. So you had this sort of dual momentum act going on in the market with the traditional momentum in, in many of those high-cap tech names, which I think represent quality totally different than, say, the 1999, early 2000 period. So, yes, I think they will continue to be dominant uh, players. But you also had that strange bedfellow of utilities, which I think has been a function of the yield grab in a very yield-starved world. Uh, so we, we could see a partnership based on investors' need for income representing strength in areas like utilities more recently in REITs. But I do think some of those high-quality growth names, particularly given that valuations have come down, not that we can trust the E yet, uh, probably still makes sense. So I, I, I think you're, to some degree you're going to see a reemergence in some of those same kind of odd leadership pairs. All that's old could be new again. Liz Ann Saunders, thank you so much. Have a Thanks, good evening. Pat. We'll talk to you again soon. You too. Bye-bye. The White House holding its nightly coronavirus task force news conference discussing social distancing efforts and when the U.S. could be ready to reopen. We are doing much better in many cases than several other countries, and we're trying to understand that. We believe that our health care delivery system in the United States is quite extraordinary. I think this will change how people look at respiratory diseases because it will change what is possible when the globe, and particularly the American people, do this level of mitigation. And I think, as I talked about yesterday, we are still, we are still in awe really, of the American people's strength in this and following through. Well, right now, we're, I mean, we're doing well in terms of the numbers. I can't tell you in terms of the date. You know, we don't want to 
We don't want to go down, and then we can start going up if we're not careful. So we have to be careful. As far as uh, distancing, social distancing and other things, certainly for a while, you know, at some point that's going away. We'll be able to sit next to each other and everything like we have all our lives. This is a very unique thing. This has not happened anything like this of this magnitude since 1917, 1918. At the president. Let's bring in now Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's the former FDA commissioner and a current CNBC contributor. Doctor, it's nice to see you again. Thanks. Dr. Fauci today said we should see the quote, the beginning of a turnaround after this week. Do your models show the same thing? Yeah, I think all the models are showing that. The IHME model updated tonight. This is a model at a Washington State University that um, the White House closely follows, as well as other people. And it showed sharp improvements across the board, with the exception of Louisiana, which showed a slight worsening. Look, I think this model overstated the case on the way up. I think that the um, modeling around the deaths was always um, probably too much. It was modeling upwards of 250,000 deaths. And that seemed like uh, a high estimate. But I think on the way down, it's probably underestimating some of the risk in the southeast and the Sun Belt. I think we could potentially see, as we've been saying on this show, bigger outbreaks in Florida, Louisiana, which the model is now showing, um, Georgia and Texas. But that said, that's not going to really affect the overall trend in the country. The overall trend in the country is that through April, we will get through this epidemic and we'll be looking at trying to restart the country at some point in early May. And that's what we've been saying for a while. I think that's on target. Number of deaths here in New York State still high, though the governor today said the curve is flattening. What do we have to watch out for now, Dr. Gottlieb? Look, we've done an extraordinary job uh, in New York and other places preserving life. Notwithstanding that fact, there's going to be a very high death toll. And that death toll is going to continue to increase um, over the coming weeks. So even as new cases is coming down, the number of deaths is going to continue to increase because people who've been hospitalized for a very long period of time are going to start to succumb to the infection. And what we're seeing in the ICU units, the intensive care units, is the time on ventilators is 10 to 14 days. And anywhere from, depending on the hospital you talk to, anywhere from 50 to 80 percent of people who get on ventilators ultimately succumb to the infection. So we're going to continue to see the mortality increase. I think what we need to watch is the Sun Belt in the southeast, how bad the outbreaks are in those states that I mentioned at the outset. Um, you know, they, they're going to uh, lead us out of this uh, epidemic nationally. New York's going to come down and they're going to start to peak and, and the cases are going to decline sharply in the city while parts of the Sun Belt are still coming up or plateauing on their epidemic. And so they're going to lead us out of this. So watching those states is going to be important to understand why, when the overall trend nationally starts to end. Talking about areas with a generally warmer climate yet today, Dr. Gottlieb, the National Academy of Sciences is warning that the virus may not fade into the summer. Your thoughts? Well, it's going to be with us. We're going to continue to have cases every single day through the summer. I don't think there's going to be ever a day that we say we're reporting zero cases of coronavirus. It has the potential to really collapse in July and August, um, where you see cases really fall off in the hot, sticky months of the summer here. I think there is a seasonal aspect to this virus. My concern, again, as we've been saying, is September. What happens when we come back? Schools restart. People go back to college. People are indoors more. Um, we face a lot of risk, and we need to get the tools in place to mitigate that risk. But I think we're going to continue to see a trend towards more normalcy through the summer. And July and August have the potential to be quiescent as long as we make this transition back to normal life in May and June successfully. Let's talk about some tools. Today we learned that Novavax 
has identified what they call an ideal vaccine candidate. It's set to launch its first human trial in May. That says weeks ahead of schedule. How promising is that news, Dr. Gottlieb? Well, I think there's a number of different vaccine platforms that show promise. Um, An mRNA platform, um, that's Moderna, the company you hear Tony Fauci talk about. Protein-based vaccines, um, vaccines that use the same construct that we used with respect to the Ebola um, virus vaccine, so inserting the coronavirus gene segment in that same construct, uh, as well as uh, adenovirus vector vaccines, and that's the kind of vaccine that J&J is working on. I think we need to place one or two bets within all of those domains and see what ultimately pans out. My guess is multiple vaccines are going to prove successful here, but it's going to take longer. Um, you know, I think on a base case, we need to figure two years. We may get lucky and get a vaccine before then, but I think to be, be safe, we need to figure out how we're going to live multiple cycles, multiple seasons with coronavirus circulating in the background before we get to a vaccine that we have the confidence to use to mass inoculate the population. And that may be two years away. Reports today say scientists in China say some recovered patients show either no or low antibody levels. How concerning is that? Well, the patients that were showing lower uh, antibody levels were actually younger patients. And this may be a clue to why younger people aren't getting as sick from coronavirus. It could be that they're getting infected with coronavirus and colonized with it, but not mounting the vigorous immune response that adults are. So they never develop the antibodies to the virus at high levels, but they also never develop the inflammatory response that adults seem to um, develop that gets them into trouble and gets many people into respiratory complications. I think what this suggests, and, and, and this isn't the only piece of evidence that suggests this, which is that there's not going to be a lot of herd immunity. I think the number of people who've actually been exposed to coronavirus in the United States and develop some level of immunity um, is going to be in the single digits in terms of percentages. I talked to a lot of experts in the field who model these things, model the trends on the flow of the infection through the population. And they say anywhere from 1% to 5% of Americans probably have been exposed to us. Many know it, some don't know it, and develop some level of antibodies. So that's not a very big number. So this idea that there's this mass population have been exposed and are now immune and they can simply go get these tests and test for their antibody levels, and then they're, they're safe to go back to work. Certainly in fields like healthcare, maybe TSA agents who, handle, who get in contact with a lot of people, or food handlers, people on checkout lines, people who touch a lot of people, probably at a higher proportion, have been exposed to this. But for most Americans, most people, most workers, most office workers, the percentages is likely to be pretty low. Mm, bit of a reality check there. Do me a favor, Dr. Gottlieb, stick with us. I want to bring in our next guest who is actually tracking the spread of the coronavirus. Joining us now is our own Meg Terrell, managing director at RBC Capital Markets, is with her tonight once again, Kenan Mackay. Take it away, Meg. Scott, Thank thanks. You. And Kenan Mackay, thanks for being with us again for, I guess, the fourth week going on now. Uh, you were one of the earliest people to t- sort of turn your modeling from biotech stocks to the virus itself and trying to figure out exactly what the curve is going to look like. And now that we're in the, the fourth week of, of you talking with us about this, how is it looking? Yeah, thanks, Meg. So we definitely are slowing. This is something that we talked about a little bit last week. Uh, we're seeing a shift in the shape of this curve, uh, moving from a, a very aggressive exponential function to something that's still an exponential function, but a little bit slower. And that's based on the T doubling time. The T doubling time keeps going up. We started with this virus doubling about every 1.6 days. Now we're looking at around 7.2 days as of the latest data today. 
So you're also seeing we're heading into a, what you call a second stage of slowing growth. Um, but you're forecasting that we're going to start to see daily case declines in maybe four to 10 days, what you call sort of the third stage of slowing growth. So that's actually potentially around the corner. Yeah. Now, this is based on data that's coming out of China. That's some of the most mature data, set that's, data sets that are out there in terms of uh, getting a handle on what this recovery could look like as these uh, actually curves start to decline day over day in terms of the new cases. Uh, thinking about that, we're actually modeling in our sort of base case scenario here, this function coming into play towards the end of this week, early next week, actually on Easter Sunday, on the 12th here. Uh, in our best case scenario, that could even happen a little bit sooner. Um, but, you know, again, certainly within sort of the next 10 days based on our modeling assumptions. How much do you think can be trusted in the numbers that we are seeing from China? There was a big report in the Wall Street Journal that's been circulated among epidemiologists. One prominent one sent it to me and said, you have to read this, uh, saying essentially the numbers are looking too good coming out of Wuhan, um, that they are restarting things, but that the numbers of new infections may not be as low as we're actually hearing. Uh, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, you know, tough to say. I haven't been able to do any sort of investigative journalism on that. Uh, but just comparing that data set to what we've seen out of some of the countries in Europe, for instance, the slowing that we've seen in Italy, which, again, had quite aggressive quarantines in place. Uh, we haven't seen anything, to your point, that's looked quite as good as China. But again, we don't know whether that's because they had that much more aggressive of a quarantine or whether that's because maybe we can't trust that data. Uh, looking at your model, you know, we've showed sort of the best case scenario, the base case scenario. Uh, what it looks like it's been tracking to essentially is sort of along the base case. Uh, but are we bending the curve to really get to that best case scenario where you're actually starting to see that flattening come about, as you said, by Easter? Yeah, you know, I, I think potentially um, we, we could start to see some sustained day over day declines uh, around Easter. Um, but you know, it's, it's tough to say. This is something we're continually updating based on the most recent data. And as we saw today and, and yesterday, that data can be very lumpy. Um, yesterday, obviously, much, much, much higher case counts than anyone had, had expected. Uh, today, it made it look like maybe yesterday had some pull through from today's numbers. Uh, so, you know, tough, tough to say. What, what I'm looking for are those day over day declines. Again, we're modeling that beginning around the 12th. And again, that all just comes from time since quarantine. All right, Kenan, thank you for joining us. We'll all be looking for that on Easter Sunday, and we'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. Scott, Thanks sending so it back to you. All right, appreciate uh, from you both, Meg and uh, Kenan Mackay. Dr. Gottlieb, I come back to you for one final question, and it is a question that Meg asked Mr. Mackay. Do you yourself trust the numbers coming out of China tonight? Well, I've never trusted the numbers coming out of China, but, you know, part of the China challenge was that they had trouble keeping up with the new cases. We've had trouble keeping up with the new cases. We're underreporting our cases here dramatically in the United States and probably underreporting some of the deaths as well. China did the same. How much of that was deliberate on the part of China and how much of that was the product of just poor reporting and the fact that this was an epidemic that they just simply couldn't keep up of? I'm not sure. I do believe the numbers have come down in China. But remember, and I'll, I'll close here. China hasn't really come back. Their manufacturing sector has reopened, but the consumer has not come back. In Singapore and Hong Kong, schools have restarted. Consumers are going out at night. In China, people go to work and then they come home. Schools have not reopened. So China has not fully reopened. 
Good to know. Dr. Gottlieb, thanks so much. We'll talk to you again soon. That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb with us once again tonight. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. We'll be right back. Next tonight, a statnews.com article calling into question whether ventilators are being overused in this crisis. One expert weighs in next. Plus, an NBA owner and hedge fund giant stepping up. I felt the need to get involved and raise my game. What Josh Harris just did will change thousands of lives. The exclusive story, next. Before the break, images of the crisis from today in the United States. for financial markets. At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Good to have you back with us. Here are some other virus headlines tonight. The government announcing its contract to have General Motors make ventilators that deal worth about $490 million. The automaker expected to produce 30,000 ventilators for the strategic stockpile by August. Official reports say U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson is improving and remains in intensive care, now in stable condition. Broadway will, the theaters will remain dark through June the 7th. 3M is speeding up delivery of special pro- uh, protective suits from overseas to the U.S. Seema Modi has more. DuPont is partnering with FedEx to speed up the delivery of its Tyvek suits seen as critical in safeguarding medical workers and first responders. 450,000 protective garments were airlifted from DuPont's manufacturing facility in Vietnam, arriving this morning in Texas. DuPont's head of safety business, John Richard, tells CNBC airlifting the garments versus sending them by sea shortens the company's supply chain from 90 to 10 days. The suits will be distributed by FEMA to some of the country's hardest hit areas. The Department of Health and Human Services anticipates receiving 2.25 million more Tyvek suits in the next five weeks. Scott, back to you. Seema, thank you. Bill Gates also working hard and spending big to find a vaccine for the coronavirus, saying his foundation will spend billions of dollars building factories to facilitate that process. Here's what he told our own Becky Quick about possibly reopening the economy. Well, unfortunately, the U.S. isn't uh, uniformly shut down. And so what you're going to see is lots of exponential increase in various communities. Also, even though our testing numbers are going up, the number of days to get a response uh, you know, it should be under 24 hours. And even for priority things, it's taking longer than that. Uh, and so that 
you know, there's no system of prioritization that still needs to be fixed. If we get our act together countrywide, and if the compliance is very high, and that testing, including some innovations like the self-swab that our foundation has driven, if those get into place, by early June, we'll be looking at some type of opening up. That's Bill Gates tonight. You can see that full interview, by the way, with Becky Quick tomorrow morning on Squawk Box starting at 6 a.m. Eastern time. Now the story of how Apollo Global Management co-founder Josh Harris, who also owns the Philadelphia 76ers, is stepping up. Here's how he's helping kids impacted by the coronavirus shut down in Philly. As someone that owns teams in cities that where many people are in need, I felt the need to get involved and raise my game. The situation with the Philly schools was dire in terms of many of the kids and the teachers in the school system couldn't afford ways of connecting. And so given the stay-at-home order, learning became difficult. We immediately jumped on this, agreed to buy 10,000 laptops, Chromebooks, so the kids can use them to join in in video classrooms and to do their homework. The players have used not only their money, but their fame and the celebrity to lead. And leading is hard. Ben Simmons, you know, with the Philly Pledge, uh, not only did he give his money, but he's using his fame and celebrity to get thousands of people to give donations. We're going to have to listen to the government and make sure that, like, the live events that we were holding um, you know, are safe. This is making me long more for sports, not less for sports, and the power of sports to bring these communities together. That was Apollo's Josh Harris, owner of the Philadelphia 76ers tonight, in his own words. Doctors, nurses, EMS workers, and all of our first responders are risking their own lives battling the coronavirus. One of them is Dr. Daniela Lamas, a pulmonary and critical care physician at Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital. She is with us tonight. Doctor, it's good to have you here. Great to be here. Thank you. The models are suggesting some modestly good news. What is your view tonight from the front lines? Yeah. So I, like everyone, am sort of cautiously heartened uh, by the models that are suggesting perhaps an overall decrease uh, in the number of deaths that we could expect from what was projected earlier. That being said, uh, all of these realities uh, rely on our continuing social distancing, uh, continuing to be rigorous in what we are doing to limit transmission. You know, here in Boston, we have not yet seen our peak. We're anticipating that within this coming week uh, to two weeks. And so we are looking ahead with a sense of uh, anxiety and trying to, to get prepared. So that's kind of where we are right here. Where are you in terms of your personal protective equipment and ventilators? Yes. So in terms of personal protective equipment, uh, I have seen shifts over time already. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we were using N95s and changing them during the day. Then it got to the point where we had only one for a day. And we've recently received some more N95s. And so we are currently able to use N95s for all of our COVID positive patients. This wasn't true even just a couple of days ago. That's good to hear. Well, please continue. Forgive me. Oh, no, no, please. I I was just saying in terms of ventilators, we are uh, still at a point where we have enough ventilators for the patients who are getting sick enough to get intubated. We're clearly looking ahead toward a reality where that might not be the case, but thankfully we're not there. Thankfully, indeed. Can you comment? There was a story today on Stat News about the possible overuse of ventilators. Perhaps patients who don't necessarily need to be put on one 
are. What are your thoughts there? This is a really interesting article, and I agree with some of the things uh, that said in it resonate with our experience. Some don't. And so the, the premise really was that we are using ventilators early in these patients and perhaps too much. And so the first question, are we intubating patients earlier than we might in other patients? The answer there is yes. Um, because of the experience that we learned from China and from Italy, that these patients can start getting sick, needing more oxygen, and then can fall off a cliff, so to speak, can worsen very rapidly. And that encouraged us that when we see some of these signs of early worsening, we would intubate instead of doing some mechanisms to stave off intubation, like higher flow oxygen through nose prongs or something that's like a machine that people would use for sleep apnea, CPAP. So we're sort of jumping over those and going straight to intubation, both for patient safety and for the fact that things like this higher flow oxygen and a CPAP machine risk aerosolizing coronavirus. So that risks, as far as we know, and this knowledge is a work in progress, that would risk having coronavirus sort of in the room can uh, get to healthcare workers. And so for both safety of the patient and safety of the surrounding staff, we're moving to intubation quicker. Is that a mistake, I think, is the next question. We haven't seen patients who get intubated early and then come off the tube in the next few days because it was unnecessary. What we're seeing are that these are patients who are sick and who end up needing the breathing tube for days to even weeks, suggesting that it was necessary, that it was the right call. You know, our protocols are changing. This is a new disease. Its pathophysiology is something that we are actively working to figure out and to understand. We're doing things differently than we've done for some patients. Patients who are even awake to stave off intubation, we often have them flip onto their stomachs to lie there instead of their backs. Because in many lung diseases, but it seems like in this disease particularly, that helps redistribute blood flow to get a patient more oxygen. So there are things we are doing to stave off intubation. We are still intubating early. That is a work in progress, but I haven't seen patients for whom it seems like that early intubation was unnecessary. It's good to talk to you tonight. Grateful for all that you're doing, that of your colleagues, and send our regards to Dr. Faust as well. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. All right. That's Dr. Lamas joining us tonight from uh, Brigham and Women's uh, Hospital. There's more ahead on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Tonight, exclusive CNBC polling on where Americans stand on the virus and the economy weeks after much of the country shut down. Also tonight, an entire generation, a generation of small business people who will be wiped out. Individual business owners angry with the government and the banks. What they want. Coming up on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. 
The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Stocks regain their footing after Tuesday's stumble. A strong day for stocks. The Dow stages an 800-point rally. Long-term, very hopeful, and I'm always going to bet on the United States of America, but short-term, just very uncertain. Successful investor Mark Cuban says despite the run, there is still a lot to fear. Tonight, your next move after the S&P 500 jumps 23% in just 13 days. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. And welcome back. Let's take you right to the board, show you how futures are shaping up after the big day. There you go. It's mixed, but the Dow has turned around, at least at this hour. Dow would open higher by some 44 points. The S&P would be positive as well. It follows the Dow rising nearly 800 points, or 3.5%. The S&P 500 up the same percentage, and the Nasdaq gaining 2.5%. The Dow was led higher today by Raytheon, United Health, and Dow. As the job losses pile up, America is facing an unprecedented hit to the economy. But Americans are still hopeful for a recovery. Here's our own Steve Leisman. The CNBC All-America Economic Survey showing an unprecedented historic decline in Americans' view of the current state of the economy. However, it did show some optimism that things would get better in the next year. Views on the current state of the economy, the percentage saying that the U.S. economy is excellent or good right now, falling 25 points to just 22%. That is a faster and steeper decline than the U.S. experienced after the 9-11 terror attacks or the 2008 financial crisis where it fell 19 points but took six months to get there. This decline just taking 24 days. Overall, Americans support the $2 trillion spending plan passed recently out of Congress and signed by the president. 92% support helping hospitals and 83% small businesses. There's also quite a bit of support for helping local restaurants and retailers. But when it comes to airlines, just 45%. Oil and gas companies not really getting much support from the public. Uh, Boeing and cruise companies and casinos getting the least support. These attitudes of the public create a conundrum for policymakers. The airlines, the oil industry, and other big businesses may indeed need help from the government. But that could risk a backlash from the public like they experienced back in the 2008 financial crisis in helping the big banks. Scott, back to you. Steve, thank you. That's our own Steve Leisman. Let's bring in now Joe Terranova. He's a halftime report trader and senior managing director with Virtus Investment Partners. Joe, it's good to see you in the evening. Good to see you as well, Scott. Thank you for having me. Not much belief in this move from either Liz Ann Saunders today or Mark Cuban. What about you? So, Scott, I would say that there were many calls last week for the market to revisit the lows. You and I both know the market never allows it to be that easy. And I think we're seeing a little bit of the unwind of that pessimism that takes us to where we are now, which is 2750. Scott, that's the highest close for the S&P 500 since March 10th. That is before the seminal moment on March 12th when Adam Silver suspended the NBA. So I think where we are now is we've handed off this recovery from the technology, the fang names, 
to small caps and to value. That's what's leading us higher right now. If there's the ability for small caps and value and financials to take us further higher, we probably have another 6 or 7% that takes you up to about 2940 If small caps and value are unable to do so, we're going to fall back by about 6 or 7% down to around 2540 Are you optimistic? I think that's where you're going to find. I'm incredibly optimistic because I think if the market does fall back that 6 or 7% to 2540 you will find very strong support there. So I would argue we're in the sweet spot right now for the market, 6 or 7% on either side of where we are now, but certainly a much higher floor than we were concerned about last week. Oh, you're not telling me buying the dip is coming back now, are you? Buying the dip has been the right strategy over the last couple of weeks. Buying the dip looking forward is going to be a little bit more difficult because you're going to have the absence of buybacks. We'll see you in the lunch hour next time. Joe, thank you. That's Joe Terranova. Halftime trader, and of course, with Vertis, as we said, there is more ahead on this CNBC special report markets in turmoil. Next tonight, frustration and anger start bubbling over. Get out of the marbled offices of Washington, D.C., and find out what's really happening on Main Street. Individual business owners say more must be done, and everyone must step up, or this country's business landscape will change forever, and not in a good way. Before the break, images from around the world on the 101st day of the coronavirus crisis. Welcome back. Many independent business owners are feeling frustration tonight over problems with the government loan program. Earlier today on CNBC, we heard from David Dodson, Stanford professor and business owner, who's worried about what will happen if the program isn't fixed. If these loans don't get through and don't get done correctly, we're looking at an entire generation, a generation of small business people who will be wiped out of their entire life's work. The federal government has said, oh, by the way, if you have anything extra left over, Pay it to the real estate company. Now, what, why would you do that? Why would you pick the real estate industry and, and, and make that industry special? What about the person who is the landscaper who needs to be paid? What about the person who is the mechanic who's working on the trucks who needs to be paid? If you pay the mechanic, you have to pay the bank back. If you pay the real estate person, it's free. Get out of the marbled offices of Washington, D.C. and find out what's really happening on Main Street. That's what we need to do. Here's the irony of it. The companies that are least risky are the ones that don't need it. They're the ones, the ones that can pay it back are the ones that don't need the loans. You need to be making these loans to the riskiest loans, the people who are fighting for their life, who they've got 25 or 250 employees that are risking losing their jobs. You've got to create an incentive where the loans go to the riskiest people, not the least risky people. David Dodson tonight in his own words. Well, while his restaurants are closed, one restaurateur is using his other ventures to give back. Joining us now is chef and TV personality, host of Food Network's Restaurant Impossible, 
is Robert Irvine. Chef, it's good to have you here. I haven't seen you since the Super Bowl not that long ago, but it feels like years at this point. It does. Good to see you, Scott. How have the last few weeks been for you with your three restaurants? Uh, well, obviously, the restaurants are closed. We have Allentown closed. Vegas is completely closed. And the only kind of restaurant I have, albeit a piece, is inside the Pentagon itself. I have four staff taking care of uh, the men and women that are still serving in there um, Monday through Friday. But like everybody else, you know, the 11 million restaurateurs, hospitality workers, we're hurting just like everybody else, uh, trying to figure out, just like David said there, how do, we, how do we get all these restaurants to get the money, not only restaurants, but every other small business, to get what they need to stay afloat through this virus? Have you been applying for the money yourself through the loan program? Yes, I've just applied uh, for, for the payroll uh, PPP for all of my companies to keep my employees. Right now, I'm paying the employees that are, that are uh, still on my payroll, but are off. They can't work, but I'm paying them. Um, I want to pay them as long as I can pay them. And if, if this money comes through, hopefully it will, then we can keep everybody on until we get through this, this bad patch and get them back to work and, and open restaurants again. Wonderful that you're able to do that. So you haven't laid off any of your employees in any of your restaurants? In, in some of them, we have. We, we literally closed down Allentown at the moment because I, I can't get people there. there. It's a hard place to get to. Uh, so a couple of them have been laid off there. Um, everywhere else, we kept them on. I mentioned a number of things that you are doing with the other brands that you have. Tell us about that. So we have Boardroom Spirits in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, my distillery. Uh, and it's kind of interesting because we got into this distillery business a couple of years ago thinking, you know, food and drink, it goes well together. And here we are, we've, we've stumbled our, our, brew, our distillery, um, uh, distiller, I should say, Tim has come up with this amazing um, recipe, if you like, for hand sanitizer, Mister, that is we're giving away to those folks in New Jersey, Delaware, and Pennsylvania. If you drive up to the, the distillery, we'll give you four to six ounces, as many times as you want. And we're also supplying... Uh, the National Guard, the firefighters, the police officers in all of those states um, to make sure that they, we can we can give them and do our part. You know, our Fit Crunch, uh, our protein bars, um, we've been giving to uh, hospitals around the country. We, we ran this um, kind of special on Twitter and Facebook and said, hey, listen, nominate uh, a healthcare worker. We got 10,000 nominations and we're sending bars and snacks and protein puffs and powders to make sure that... Uh, we can take care of them. And our foundation, the Robert Irvine Foundation, is all about first responders, firefighters, police officers, uh, and all those kind of amazing folks. And our military, we've actually been sending with TAPS, um, in partnership with TAPS, $300 gift cards to our military families that are having the same problems. And that's our military, uh, uh, buying food and uh, taking care of their families. Yeah. So we're trying the best we can do. Um, you know, my life is about saving restaurants. Um, I, I, I'm just mind boggled that when we come out of this, um, I want to help as many restaurants, not even about television, as many restaurants as we can to make sure they get back on uh, on track. You know, uh, it's so sad. I mean, it, this is an industry that I've been in all my life and to watch the devastation that this virus has caused, not only in restaurants, across the board. Uh, and the more we can do um, in my companies, the more we can do in, in literally any business. I'll save any bit. Me, Marcus Zamonis, uh, Tom Calicchio, and Jose Andres. I think what a, what a dream team to go in and start making some uh, big changes. There you go. That would be a fearsome foursome. Um, you do give advice uh, for a living. 
What would your advice be tonight for the restaurant owner who doesn't have as many restaurants as you, who doesn't employ as many people as you, but wants to save their business and is wondering whether they can? Your advice would be what? And it's interesting, uh, Scott. I've actually been FaceTiming all the restaurants that I've been doing and giving advice all week um, for the show, funnily enough. I would say to all those, those small business out there, look at your menu, look at your cost, reduce your menu right now. Let's get through this program, put out a great product um, as quickly as possible, change the menu as frequently as possible to get through this. And then the hard work starts to get people back into the restaurants. You know, when we, when we start back, we've got to look at what are the social distances, uh, distancing rules. You know, if a restaurant has 100 seats, are we only able to fill 50? In which case, we've got to really start thinking about the revenue, the turns, and how do we make up that lost revenue? So we've got to look at staffing, food costs, labor costs more than ever. Create menus and create small giveaways that, that create that loyalty. We already love our restaurants that have... I don't know, loyalty programs and a lot of people that come because they love the chefs and, and the business. Well, now's the time we've got to capitalize on that. Email, social media, pictures of food, you name it, get it out there. Chef, we appreciate your time. We wish you the best. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate you. We'll see you soon. All right. You take care. That's Chef Robert. We will, we will get through this together. We certainly will. We certainly will. There is more ahead on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Welcome back on day 101 of the coronavirus pandemic. Here are the latest headlines tonight. President Trump says we have to be on the downslope of the virus before we can reopen the country. And he would heavily rely on health experts before making that decision. Minutes of last month's emergency Federal Reserve meeting show the central bank plans to keep interest rates near zero until the economy weathers the impact from the outbreak. And stocks rise more than 3 percent, the Dow gaining nearly 8 100 points. Let's give you a final look at futures as well after this big day. And they've been a little bit choppy in this early session. Volumes light. Of course, it is light trading and thin, but the Dow futures would open higher by 75. S&P and Nasdaq also in the green at this moment. You can go to CNBC.com for up to the minute information on the markets and the coronavirus. We'll be back tomorrow at 5 a.m. with Worldwide Exchange. I'll see you again tomorrow evening at 7 p.m. For our continuing coverage of markets in turmoil, for all of us here at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. Please stay safe. Shark Tank is next. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.